catch up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com. Tunde is a 16-year-old energetic boy in Lagos preparing to take the West African Examination Council organized exams, popularly called WAYEC, which is the basic requirement to apply to a university in West Africa. The exams are held in the months of May and June, just when the rainy season starts. Tunde has been to the hospital twice already and is hoping that he doesn't get hit by another fit of fever and flu-like illness, which usually includes shaking chills, headaches, muscle aches and tiredness. He hopes this doesn't happen before his next paper. If malaria stops Tunde from writing his next paper, this could mean that money spent to prepare him for the examination and to register for the exams will be lost. Tunde may also have to wait an extra year to sit for the same exam and may well get a one-year delay before getting into the university. His family cannot afford this. Malaria kills over 400,000 people annually, costs at least $12 billion per year, and contributes to many more billions of dollars in lost economic growth. An individual household in Africa like Tunde's family bears the greatest burden of malaria globally and loses an estimated 25% of its annual income to malaria, not to mention the 40% of government health services which are directed to malaria. Four African countries accounted for a little bit over half of all malaria deaths worldwide. Nigeria with 31.9%. Not strange because Tunde is from Lagos in Nigeria. The Democratic Republic of Congo, 13.2%. The United Republic of Tanzania, 4.1%. And Mozambique with 3.8%. Can we put an end to malaria in Africa? The World Health Organization's Global Technical Strategy for Malaria from the year 2016 to 2030, which was updated in 2021, provides a technical framework for all malaria endemic countries. The strategy sets ambitious global targets, including reducing malaria case incidents by at least 90% by 2030, reducing malaria mortality rates by at least 90% by 2030, eliminating malaria in at least 35 countries by 2030, and preventing a resurgence of malaria in all countries that are malaria-free. Despite the challenges of COVID-19 in our fight against malaria, can Africa still reach the zero malaria target by 2030? Vestergaard's Head of Global Growth and Advocacy, Patrick Sees, will share some experiences and reflections on the efforts to reach the target of zero malaria in Africa and highlight some successes and lessons learned from the COVID pandemic. Hi, Patrick. It's good to meet you. Welcome. Now, Vestergaard and Goodbye Malaria partnered with Mozambique's Ministry of Health to celebrate the World Malaria Day 2022 on the 25th of April 2022. The event aimed to renew the power of partnerships in the fight against malaria as well as the opportunity to engage with the Mozambican private sector to commit to keeping malaria at the top of the national agenda. Patrick, tell us a bit about Vestigard, what it does and what it stands for. Very well. Thank you indeed, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. So Vestergaard is a family-owned global health company that's dedicated 
to serving people in vulnerable situations around the world, most of whom live in low and middle income countries. And, and we're really determined to prove the private sector can play a crucial role in solving the world's biggest public health challenges, which is why sort of our entire innovation platform is devoted to creating scalable solutions for the most vulnerable people in often the most extreme situations, really to show the world that doing good can be good business. And so our mission revolves around innovations in disease control textiles and um, uh, our permanent WH pre-qualified long-lasting insecticide-treated bed nets play a leading role in that fight against malaria as more than 800 million permanent have been supplied over two decades to malaria endemic countries, protecting over 1.6 billion people from malaria. And so I'll leave you with this last thought, and that is that every night, 300 million people are sleeping under a permanent bed net. And so we can see a very direct link, a really direct connection between permanent bed nets and actually saving lives. Hmm. Okay, very interesting. The COVID-19 pandemic started at a time when you know, the progress in malaria had started to increase and a global response was kind of taking some shape. Can you help us understand how much impact the COVID pandemic had on the fight against malaria, especially here on the continent in Africa? Indeed. And you mentioned the continent of Africa. I've, I've, uh, I've lived in Africa and traveled to Africa for over 20 years. So it's something that's very dear to my heart. But quite frankly, we have to acknowledge that data from World Health Organization does actually reveal the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted malaria services, eventually leading to a significant increase in cases and, and deaths. So we look to uh, every year the World Malaria Report is, is published by WHO. And so in the latest report, uh, there's an estimated 241 million malaria cases and 627,000 malaria deaths worldwide. And this unfortunately represents an increase that was linked to disruptions in the provision of, of malaria prevention, diagnosis and treatment of about 14 million more cases and 69,000 more deaths. So approximately two thirds of those 47,000 were actually linked to those disruptions. But it's important to note that the situation could actually have been far worse because early on in the pandemic, WHO had projected that with severe service disruptions, there was a risk of, of potentially doubling malaria deaths. But thankfully, we've averted the worst case scenario. And the reason really is that uh, countries that were planning insecticide-treated bed net campaigns, known as mass campaigns, about 60% of them completed their campaigns by the end of 2020. And approximately 70%, a little over 70% of the planned uh, campaigns had actually been distributed. So really, when we look at the end of 2021, so these two pandemic years, there were really only uh, two countries or so that had not completed distribution of bed nets. So we really must applaud African countries and ministries of health, national malaria control programs for ensuring that such a vital commodity is uh, distributed uh, on time, saving lives. Very overwhelming figures, I would say. Very the numbers are yeah, mind, they're a bit big. <laughs> very troubling. Numbers are very, very troubling. troubling. So, what efforts um, were made by private sector stakeholders like yourself to uh, ensure that this disruption? wasn't as deadly as um, it would have been or it would have been 
um, foreseen? And in hindsight, what do you think we can do to ensure that this sort of disruption doesn't affect this particular space again? Well, look, it's it's first and most important to note uh, is that 627,000 people died from malaria from what is a preventable and entirely curable disease. And so more, more than two-thirds of those deaths were among children under the age of five living in the African region. And so this keeps me awake at night, as I know that we have good tools and interventions that when deployed in a timely manner can actually bring down the burden of disease. So from our perspective, as a company that manufactures long-lasting treated bed nets, our goal is, of course, to ensure a reliable supply chain. So during COVID-19, it was absolutely critical for us to, to safeguard that people continue to remain protected from malaria by raising awareness of the value of reliable supply chains. And we've heard a lot in this pandemic period about global supply disruptions. Well, you could only imagine how, how you know, the, the, the impact would be if we couldn't bring out life-saving interventions um, and in a timely manner. So throughout the pandemic, our teams have remained in, in close contact with global institutions, global public health institutions, National Malaria Control Programs, Ministries of Health, to reassure them that uh, production wouldn't come to a halt, that mosquito nets would be ready for shipment, and so on and so forth. And, and so we are very pleased to note from our own efforts that we have a 98% on-time performance record in terms of ensuring that our permanent bed nets were actually made available from our production sites. So really in hindsight, how can we ensure that these disruptions don't impact us again? Well, it's a great question because we can't afford a missed opportunity. The global response to the COVID crisis proved that when global public health and global economies are threatened, we can actually summon a collective power and our, all our resources to overcome a disease. That's what we're seeing with the pandemic. So we, we believe actually that private sector can contribute to a more equitable access to malaria commodities and a more resilient supply chain through particularly long-term supply collaborations with key institutions. There is actually a need for a partnership approach to everything that we do from the planning, procurement and, and distribution of malaria commodities, one which can leverage the full set of, of capabilities. So what we honestly really need coming out of a pandemic of this magnitude is for all actors to work together to establish, you know, supply or strategic supply collaborations, because this builds resilience in a supply chain. And that's a critical lesson that we learned from COVID. And who do you think should be in charge of leading this partnership? Who should um, lead the partnership and say, okay, this is how it should go. Um, let's bring all, all the partners, relevant partners to the table. Um, the government, should it be private sector? Who should be in charge? Well, so the power of partnerships is is exactly that. It's when everyone uh, leverage the best of what they have, their core competences, their resources, their R&D, and, and so on and so forth. But so I wouldn't, I wouldn't pinpoint any one particular institution because it's the sum total of every, every institution and organization working together. But it must first and foremost be a country-led initiative. It has to be country-owned and a country-led initiative. So critical to this is really political will. If you've got really 
really a, a deep understanding of the threat that malaria can have on, on your populations. This has to really start at, at the, the top of a country in terms of its, uh, its, its political will. But uh, there are some tremendous uh, uh, organizations out there uh, from the, the global public health donors, the Global Fund, uh, you've got the World Health Organization, you've got numerous malaria stakeholders. But quite frankly, we've got to empower the national malaria control programs. They understand uh, the setting uh, best. They can use the data best and really ensure that life-saving commodities reach the hardest to reach populations. Hmm. Now, this is more like a direct question. You were the regional director for Africa, um, Vestigard, for about seven years, and you've been on the continent for you know over a decade. Do you think Africa can still reach that zero malaria target by 2030? Well, I, I do. I do. Um, I, I think it's it's extremely important, first and foremost, that we have uh, that we have targets. But I, I, you know, I also have to acknowledge that we have still a long way to go. This disease is one that we've lived with for too long, and we actually shouldn't choose to live with it. It is preventable. It's entirely curable. But it does take an, an, an awful lot, and it starts with funds and resources. So this year is, is, is a very important year in which we have to rally around the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. We have to rally around their replenishment goal to raise $18 billion over three years to save 20 million lives. And, and so this type of in investment is expected to save about 20 million lives from malaria, HIV, and, and TB, but it can also reduce malaria cases and deaths by more than 60%, and more importantly, eliminate malaria from at least another six countries by 2026. So what will it take? I mean, we've got to move away from a, a, a one-size-fits-all approach. We've got to ensure that data drives selection and deployment of malaria tools. We have to innovate faster than the mosquito mutates. And so innovation and finding new pathways to bringing innovative tools to malaria endemic countries is absolutely imperative. So tools have to be well-tested. They've got to be trialed. We've got to prove their long-term efficacy. And so now is not the time to experiment. And so we've got to have you know, better and more granular data and science to guide us in terms of which are the best tools to deploy. So they are very ambitious targets, but they are also very feasible. Yeah, I would say so. They, they are very ambitious. It's fundamentally unacceptable that a child dies every minute. And we've got to sustain the gains and not not move backwards. But it is a it's a fickle uh, disease. You know, the, the the mosquito is 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 evolving. Uh, uh, you know, faster than than we can bring new tools to market. It's uh, she. Remember, it's a female. Uh, is is uh, is developing insecticide resistance very quickly. So we've really got to innovate and accelerate interventions and innovations. And I think that if we can do all of these things. As we have seen with COVID, with the COVID pandemic, we should get really, really far along along the target. Uh, if we can do it with COVID, I'm, I'm convinced we can do it with malaria. Mm, interesting. You've mentioned some successes we had in making sure that the disruption from COVID didn't really affect the fight against malaria as much as it did. Um, do you have some other successes in our fight against malaria through the COVID period? And what lessons did we learn from fighting malaria and COVID at the same time? 
Well, gosh, you know, it, 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 it obviously it was initially very uh, difficult to, to work with both diseases at the same time as they had similar symptoms. So, of course, uh, there were some, some concerns uh, with regards to, to health-seeking behavior. If I have a fever, is it, is it one or the other, and, and so on and so forth. So we've, we've certainly learned that when we put the right tools into communities, really working with communities and having them understand the behavior change that's required, the messaging that's that's needed to to have people, you know, seek treatment. Then, you know, we 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 we, we have a chance here. COVID, uh, you know, it was unexpected. Uh, uh, obviously, I mean, uh, pandemics. Uh, it may not be the last one. That's not a prediction. So please don't quote me for that. But uh, we we have to strengthen. Uh, our pandemic response. Uh, and we've got to apply what we've learned from how we've tackled uh, COVID with the resources, with the cooperation, the, the collaboration, the, the best of what we have. We've got to bring that to scale to address the problem of, of malaria. So honestly, I, I, I think it's entirely achievable. I think we have seen successes um, there are uh, numerous countries that are reporting uh, a decrease in, in, in cases uh, and deaths, but we can't measure it really year by year. We have to look at it over a bit of a longer period so that we can see that there is indeed a sustained reduction in cases and deaths. So, so we're, 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 on, we're, we're off track, let's be honest. We're, we're off track. We're not on the right track. But but I'm I'm seeing much better collaboration, and I think our World Malaria Day, you know, is an opportunity to to really speak about that. Mm-hmm. Now back to the World Malaria Day 2022 event you had on the 25th of April. Tell us a bit more about the aim of the event and what it wishes to achieve. How it will contribute to the fight against malaria in Africa. Yeah, I mean, World Malaria Day is. Uh, an opportunity to appreciate uh, the, the the work and commitment by all the malaria stakeholders and partners uh, globally, but it's also an opportunity to to take note of uh, of you know the task ahead of us. We still have a, uh, a significant task ahead of us, so it's an opportunity to renew the power of partnerships in the fight against malaria, as well as engaging with malaria stakeholders, and now in particular in in Mozambique, but this. Goes Goes across all malaria endemic countries the, uh, as we celebrate World Malaria Day globally to commit to keeping malaria at the very top of the national agenda. So in collaborating uh, with uh, Goodbye Malaria, an Africa-led uh, malaria advocacy initiative, wonderful company, a wonderful institution. Uh, so in collaborating with, with Goodbye Malaria and Mozambique uh, uh, Ministry of Health, uh, malaria stakeholders, and of course, private sector, we can show that when we bring the best of our individual capabilities, the best of our competencies and skills and resources, and join them together, we can be such a formidable force in the fight against this disease. And so that has been missing for a number of years. We haven't really seen how to leverage the power of of, of private sector or the private uh, of, of of partnerships. So, and 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 so, why is that important? Because public and private partnerships like this allow for an acceleration of interventions, research and development and innovations, where we can bring these competencies to bear on eliminating malaria. So we we had hoped, uh, as we were developing our thinking on on supporting the World Malaria Day event in Mozambique, we'd hoped that, that the private sector would rally around the event, 
But I, I'll be very honest, I was overwhelmed, um, very, very positively surprised to see the volume of commitments and contributions totaling $7 million over three years benefiting the End Malaria Fund in, in Mozambique that really shows that a committed and a dedicated private sector can be a force for good. And it really shows the power of partnerships. Mm, nice. So fi- let your final notes, uh, final thoughts here be on the power of partnerships, um, private sector, public uh, stakeholders, and then to those who are on the continent, just no more individuals on the continent who every day struggle with malaria, either themselves or those close to them, like the story I shared of Tunde and his household. Indeed, if we can pull together, as I mentioned, the best of what we have, and, and I think it's, it's, we're, getting, we're getting better and better at this, we need to give Tunde a fighting chance. It's unacceptable that, the, that, that children and pregnant women are, are, are dying, as I said, from a disease that's entirely curable and, and preventable. But it's also unacceptable that we, we, we live with malaria. We, we, we have to combine our efforts to, to eliminate it as, as quickly as at all possible and give you know, youth the, the, the chance to live a fulfilling uh, life. And so I'm seeing this now, having, having worked two decades in, in, in Africa and, and with public health, I'm really seeing that partnerships are coming together. I'm seeing that the world is coming together. And of course, all eyes will be on the US later this year for the global fund replenishment. If we can see a, a replenished global fund to the tune of $18 billion, saving 20 million lives, then, then yes, that, that's a huge achievement and well on the way towards uh, our malaria elimination targets. But it takes every single person acknowledging their role. And it takes, you know, a village, a town, a city, a country, a region. Everyone needs to pull together. We can do this. Yes, we can. I believe we can. And the power of partnerships, we should never downplay that power because through it, we can achieve whatever we want. We can um, read Africa of malaria in our own generation. Thank you very much, Patrick Sees. But before I let you go, we usually don't share this before um, our guest comes um, on the show. Uh, we just uh, spring it up. So I'm about to spring something up on you. Um, nothing very serious. Uh, <laughs> I would like to know if you think of one thing that hasn't been invented and you're like, gosh, how come no one has ever thought about this? What will it be? Wow, that's a that, of course. I, I guess everyone else that you've asked the question uh, of has has uh, has has reflected on that 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 question. What is the one thing that I would like to see that has not yet been invented? Well, uh, I, I would have said a vaccine for malaria, uh, to be mm. quite honest. But but uh, perhaps uh, perhaps it's not a fair response because we do have a vaccine. Yeah, uh, it's been forty years in the making. It's a, a fantastic achievement. It's not quite going to hit the mark. It's a, it's a complicated vaccine to work with. And we've certainly seen the power of vaccines, you know, in terms of, of COVID. But so, so I'm going to use that one. I would like to see a fully effective malaria vaccine that can rid the world of, of this scourge as soon as at all possible. Is that a fair response? Well, well, yeah, I think I'll take that. Uh, <laughs> I'll throw in one more to make sure it's as fair as possible. Three 
apps on your device that you can't do without. Yeah, three apps that I can do without. You can't do without. That, that, that I can't do without. Yeah. Well, so I think a banking app is uh, is uh, is very important. I lived in Kenya for many years, and I saw I saw the uh, the, the the power of uh, of of putting banking um, you know on a phone. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's absolutely great. It really empowers people. Uh, so so that's a good one. I, I think a, a access to a, a health app. So I have a, a number of health apps where uh, I can put in perhaps some of the symptoms that I have, and either it can refer me to a local clinic, a hospital, or at least guide me in in uh, in health uh, uh, seeking behaviour. And what would the what would the last one be? You know, I I think you're probably asking me to talk about social media, and um, uh, you know, I'm going to say a social media app. Perhaps not which one. Uh, just to be fair, but the reason I, I I would say that is because the value of social media apps is that we stay connected. You know, it, it, I lived and was born before uh, apps were invented and and the internet was invented. So I've seen the power of the internet and how it can bring people together. I think we're experiencing that right now. I'm sitting in Switzerland having a wonderful conversation with you. Um, so, so yeah, I think a social media app where we can share our thoughts, where we can share, uh, uh, you know, interventions in new innovations and really discuss uh, together uh, how we can uh, make this world a better place. Okay, that's beautiful. Uh, most persons, this is just sharing this with you, most persons have like a social media app first on their list. And it's really good to meet someone who has that like, you know, third or like, last on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and uh, your experiences with me um, on meeting the malaria target by Africa by 2030. I really appreciate this and I hope that we would keep having conversations like this and the partnerships will continue to blossom um, so that we can reach the targets and read Africa of malaria. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I just want to say I, I've traveled many times to to West Africa and Nigeria, and, and uh, we will continue working with all the partners and stakeholders uh, to ensure that we, we, we bring the best that we have. And so thank you to you for highlighting this very important subject. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to catch up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com.